I wonder how many of you have been lost, maybe trying to find the third floor of CSMA as a visitor, or in a big city, um, maybe in the wilderness or in a forest. That feeling of not knowing where you are. And I'll claim the distinction of having done that, both in cities and in the wilderness, many times. I've led people astray in both places. So I have some expertise in this. But I'm here. And so I have learned what it takes to find your way back again. And the lesson is pretty obvious and simple, but it's this. You sit down with a map, or what you remember of a map, and you find the landmarks. In cities, you look for tall buildings or parks or street signs. In the forest or in the wilderness, you look for the highest mountain. You look for a valley or a stream or the contours of a hill. Anything that gives you some sense of where you came from and where you need to go. Well, a Christian life, as you can easily imagine, is very much a journey of finding the landmarks on the way of finding ourselves in each stage of life, each day, needing to return to things and to landmarks that remind us where we are and where we are going. In the Old Testament, there are two primary landmarks. And it's a vast um, collection of scripture. The Old Testament, 78% of the Bible, and it has prophecies and poems and stories, and I do not understand a good deal of it. But I assure you, it's David, I think. I assure you that if you know these two things, you do know about 98% of what is happening. It's these two grand landmarks of God's work of creation in Genesis and of his exodus of Israel from the people in Egypt into the Promised Land. Those two landmarks, Israel repeats them again and again to give them a sense of where they have been and where they must go and where their Lord is when they feel lost. You think about them today, they're in our readings, but let me just exemplify this for you. If you might remember that the Ten Commandments are listed twice in the Old Testament. Once in the book of Exodus and once in the book of Deuteronomy. And the only real difference between the two lists is this. In Exodus, on the Sabbath, the longest law by far, The reason that you keep the Sabbath is for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and blessed it. Therefore you shall keep the Sabbath. But in Deuteronomy, here's the reason for the Sabbath. For you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord brought you out with a strong arm. Therefore you shall keep the Sabbath. You see, it should begin to become obvious. These are the two landmarks for Israel. The one time each week they needed to stop, they remembered the two marks along the way. That the mighty hand of the Lord had acted once, and in a time of slavery and darkness and despair, he had acted again. We read from um, Psalm 118 today, a Thanksgiving psalm, very typical to read on Easter. This is my song and my salvation. The mighty hand of the Lord has done it. He has become my victory. Five times that psalm cites from Exodus 15. That's Moses' song by the sea at the Exodus. 
In fact, the Exodus is the most mentioned event in all the Old Testament far and away. Remembering the mighty hand of the Lord and the prayer in Psalm 118 is, Lord, we thank you, do it again. See how the landmarks enter into the prayer life of Israel's people is a thanksgiving and a call for help. This strange passage that I think James read for us today in Isaiah 51. Was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces and pierced the dragon? I sent an email to the church just saying, what in the world does that mean? A strange kind of saying. Was it not you, he goes on to say, who broke open the waters and divided the deeps, the great deeps, and they walked forward on dry land, the redeemed of the Lord. Rahab and the dragon, or Leviathan, if you know the book of Job or uh, many of the Psalms, these are symbolic of the chaos of the world before God spun it into order. Job 26, to, to cut Rahab and defeat Rahab is to break the world out of its place of darkness and out of the watery vapors and bring forth land and light and life. And so Isaiah is doing exactly what the psalmist is doing. Was it not you who did those two mighty works that we remember week after week and will you not do it again? The two landmarks that lead the people forward, that remind them where they are on the road in the journey of faith and of life. What does that have to do with Easter? Everything, if you have paid attention for years to the readings and the path of Easter, for the Lord's death and resurrection is that third landmark on the horizon. The Lord's death and rising again. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6. All of you who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death so that you might be buried with him in death. So that just as he rose again on the third day, you may have a share of eternal life with him. This is the third great moment. And if you look carefully at it, it is so carefully and clearly constructed like those two great moments of Israel's history. At the hour that Jesus died in the afternoon, darkness covered the land. And Jesus was buried in the depths. And on that third day, when Peter and the disciples come, they marvel, which is precisely what Psalm 118 says. This is the stone that the builders rejected, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's Luke's, I think, hint to say something absolutely extraordinary has just happened. On the order of creation, on the order of bringing a nation out of Egypt and dividing a sea, something marvelous has happened. And how do I become a member of that marvelous act of a new world, a new land, and of new life? By being baptized. Just as the waters were divided in Genesis, just as the waters were divided in the sea, we pour water upon those who join the story in faith, commit themselves into believing that God has acted once again by his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. One decisive and final time. You may know this and you'll hear it in our prayers at the back when we prepare to baptize, but the gospel writers want us to understand this theme of the power of creation in Jesus' works. John may do it the most um, 
extensively. He begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And there was light. John is hinting, if we're not getting it, the Creator has become creation. He's entered into the darkness and the slavery and the chaos and the lostness and the suffering and the bleakness that we have created of his world. And he binds them to himself and he carries them through death into the grave, into the chaos, into the depths, and rises again to bring new creation forever. In John's Gospel, you know, Jesus is wandering in the garden and Mary is looking for him. And she says, where is he? Not knowing that it was Jesus and thinking he was, anyone know what John says? The gardener. That's John's final hint. The creator is on the scene making things new. Friends, as we go back to baptize these children today, we should be thinking in our minds of the mighty hand of the Lord in creation, the mighty hand of the Lord in the Exodus that raised Jesus from the dead, pouring out his spirit on these two families and their children. These will be the latest, mightiest works of the Lord, and it will be marvelous in our eyes. And I want you to remember, as David and I sprinkle you with water and ask you to renew your baptismal vow, I am a mighty work of the hand of the Lord. He has become my song of salvation. Amen.